0: I'm back from vacation. I'll answer the questions now. You almost missed the fun and what's going on on my forehead. Two Sundays ago, I bought a bike carrier that mounts on the trunk of our car. I've always wanted to take my bike to PEI on vacation. So I put the carrier on, then flipped up the trunk lid, loaded the trunk, and forgot that the carrier was there. And I didn't just lower it slowly, but I went slam, and there were six more Steri-Strips there initially. I'm down to two now, so it's almost completely healed. But no concussion, no concerns there, no stitches, just a tetanus shot. That was it. When I was attending Maritime Christian College, I had five liberal arts courses that I had to take, so I took all of those in one year at UPEI, so that I could play hockey. And I was a good defenseman, but I wasn't one of the top four, so I didn't play that much. But in one game in Fredericton, just four minutes into the game, one of our top players hurt his leg. And the coach says, Greg, get out there and get warmed up. And, And I was already warmed up. It was only four minutes into the game. So I just went over to check on my friend and make sure he was okay. I came back by the bench, and the coach just laid in me. Like, didn't I tell you to warm up? And then he used some words you don't share in church. or <laughs> Actually, I never share them anyway. And would you mind doing some stops and starts? So there I am. All the players are over by the benches, and I'm doing stops and starts on the ice. He gave me an instruction. He gave me a command, and I didn't listen. Which of God's commandments are most difficult for you to obey? Is it do not lie? Some people say that's the hardest one to obey because there are times in our lives when things happen and if we just twisted the truth just a little bit, like we could kind of help ourselves out a little bit. Or maybe you say the hardest command to obey in our materialistic culture is do not covet. You see some friends who have things that you wish that you had and all of a sudden, like, there's that desire, you become jealous of them. Or some of you might single out, do not lust. Like In our sensual society, that might be one of the most difficult ones to follow. Or what about this command in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14? Do everything without complaining or arguing. I know some Christians who think that complaining is one of the spiritual gifts. (laughs) They don't realize that God is there working through everything. And here's one of the toughest commands to obey, and that's in John 14, verse 1. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, there are so many things to be troubled about. We see terrorist strikes all around our world. We have financial issues in our home. We have issues with our children. Maybe it's issues with our grandchildren. But there's just so much to be troubled about. And I want to confess that I'm tempted to worry. I I preach about it. I I preach about avoiding it. But when something comes into your life that you have no control about, boy, it's hard to not let that get a grip on you. But listen again to Jesus' words. Like, don't let your hearts be troubled. See, maybe you're affected by the what-ifs. You think of all these things that could happen, that could go wrong. and Just remember those words. See, the peace of God hinges on being confident that Jesus has risen from the dead and that he has provided a way to heaven, and we know how to get there. And keep in mind that the words that we're looking at here this morning were said by Jesus just hours before he is arrested and then actually put to death. So what is it about what he has to say? What reasons does he give for us as his followers to not be troubled? When we look at the rest of that first verse in John 14, he said, Trust in God, trust in me. If you're troubled about your finances... And someone comes up to you and they say, look, if you just turn all your money over to me, within a year, your debts will all be paid off and I will also increase the amount of money in your bank account. Now, you might be a little intrigued by this, but you're going to do a lot of investigating before you allow this person to have your money, to be in control of your money. So why would you trust Jesus with your entire future? What is it about him that would enable you to do that? First of all, he's trustworthy because of his supernatural ability. So we're moving ahead to John 14, verse 9. Jesus answered, I have been with you a long time now. Do you, not still, excuse me, do you still not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So why do you say, Show us the Father. Jesus was no ordinary man, but he was God making an appearance on earth. And the Bible affirms his credentials as the Son of God right from the moment he arrived. A young virgin by the name of Mary conceived a child by the Holy Spirit, and she gave birth to a son, and he was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Jesus is also trustworthy because of his integrity. Look at Hebrews 4.15. For our high priest is able to understand our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way that we are, but he did not sin. So just imagine, as a boy, he never talked back to his mother. He never lied to his father about where he had been. He never cheated on any of his tests at synagogue school, and when he was a grown man, he was the only person that kept all the commandments perfectly. His record was spotless. So he asked his enemies, Okay, which one of you is going to be the one to accuse me of being a sinner? And there was just silence. And if I asked you that question, like, Who of you is going to accuse me of being a sinner? there would be a lineup and my family would be at the front of that lineup. And most of the accusations that were made would be true because my record isn't spotless. Yet Jesus was standing before Pontius Pilate, a hostile judge, and this is what he said after examining Jesus in court. I find no fault in him. Jesus also merits your trust because of his keen intellect. No one could match him and his intellectual brilliance. When he was 12 years of age, the Jewish scholars were just blown away by the knowledge that this young man had. And then one time, the temple police were sent to arrest him as an adult, and he was teaching at the time, and they started to listen to him, and they were just overcome by his teaching, and they forgot what their mission was, and then... They're trying to explain to their superiors why we didn't arrest Jesus and bring him back. And they said, well, no one ever taught like that man. And 2,000 years later, we're still reading those same words and they stimulate our thinking and challenge our behavior. Like he's by far the most intelligent man that ever lived. And then he merits our trust because of his miraculous power. John 14, verse 11 again. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Like, but Only Jesus could make the diseased well, the deaf hear, the demons flee, and the dead rise from the grave. Like One of the politicians in his day admitted, like, Jesus, you have to be from God. Like, no one else could do these miracles unless God was with them. And then he's worthy of our trust because of his sacrificial death. that like the religious leaders of the day were so struck down by his holiness and they lived so much in contrast to that that they were scheming to try and get rid of him. But Jesus said, no one takes it away from me. I give my own life freely. I have the right to give my life and I have the right to take it back. I give my life as a ransom for many. So he didn't die as a sad victim of injustice. He died as a deliberate substitute for sin. Let's just imagine that you're three months behind on your mortgage payment, and your loans officer calls you into the bank, and you go for that meeting, and you're just trembling. You're so nervous because you're helpless, and you're anticipating that you will be evicted from your home. But the bank official says, "Look, "'I've got good news that you have a rich relative who has come along and not only paid the three months that you owe on your mortgage, but has also paid off everything that you owe. The house is yours completely. Congratulations.' Now you would be elated and you would be so grateful and you'd be doing your own version of a happy dance or whatever because that debt was relieved. We have a huge debt of sin and there's no way we can even begin to pay that. We're subject to eviction from God's house. But Jesus came along and paid the entire debt for us by dying on the cross. And the Bible actually says... The one who knew no sin actually became sin for us. So he's worthy of your trust because he sacrificed his life for you. Like no one ever cared for you like Jesus. And then he's worthy because of his predicted resurrection. Like, he predicted the impossible. He said, I am going to be crucified, and on the third day I will come back to life again. His closest followers didn't believe it because they had run off and hidden in case this crucifixion would happen to them as well. But he did it on the third morning. An angel came down from heaven, rolled that huge stone away from the grave, and Jesus walked out of there alive again. If he could predict and then conquer the grave, then he's capable of handling all my troubles. And then he's worthy of our trust because of his present position. Like Romans 8.34 shares that with us. Who can say God's people are guilty? No one, because Christ Jesus died, but he was also raised from the dead. And now he is on God's right side, appealing to God for us. Like the Bible teaches that Jesus ascended into heaven, and he's now up there praying for us. He's negotiating with God for us. He's working against our accuser, Satan. It's like, Wouldn't you trust someone who has a big-time influence with the judge of the universe, someone who's pleading your case, and that's the one who says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust in me. When I was a youngster playing hockey, my dad drove me to pretty well every practice and game, and we always had a carload of kids. But if we had practices that were late afternoon, early evening, sometimes I would go with Dr. Ellis and his kids, and Dr. Ellis would always drop me off at the end of our lane. Now, I say lane, not driveway. Here in the city, we have driveways, but in rural PEI on our farm, we had a lane. One of our neighbors had a 1.5 kilometer drive, uh, lane, not driveway, almost blew it. So Dr. Ellis would drop me off at the end of our lane, and by the time we got home, it was dark, and I didn't like walking up that lane because every shadow it was a, uh, someone coming to get me of uh, as a mass murderer or something. So the practice would end, and then Dr. Ellis is talking to the other adults, and I'm thinking, hurry, hurry, or by the time we get to my place, it's going to be dark. And I'm nervous, and we get there, we're driving along, and then I see the shadow of my father. He saw me the last time this happened. He saw me running up the lane with my heavy kit bag over my shoulder, and he came down to meet me. So, all of a sudden, my troubles were over. I was relieved, and I walked home with my dad without a care in the world. Like, don't let your heart be troubled about an uncertain future. Like, the one who has all power and authority over the universe, he won't let you walk through that darkness alone. Like, King David even wrote, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I I won't fear any evil for you are with me. I read a plaque once that said, Lord, help me remember that there's nothing that's going to happen to me today that you and I can't handle together. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me and put your hope in heaven. Look at uh, verse 2 of John 14. There are many rooms in my father's house. I would not tell you this If it were not true, I am going there to prepare a place for you. So this week, we're beginning a series of messages on heaven. And over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about what it's going to be like, what our bodies will be, who will be there, what we're going to do there. And the Bible tells us some interesting and surprising things about life after death. So I hope that you'll be present for each of those messages. Now, some of you are from British Columbia. Somebody's here from Calgary today. So I don't expect all of you to be here, but the rest of you could be. And there are several metaphors that we see in the Bible for heaven. The kingdom of God, marriage supper, wedding feast. But the one I like the best is referred to as the Father's house. And when I say that word, like, what do you think of? If someone says to you, we're going over to Dad's house after church today, what kind of thoughts come into your head? Does that communicate a place of security, love, laughter, acceptance, encouragement, and food? There's always that at your father's house. Like Those are the values that make a house a home. And Jesus called heaven my father's house. And for most of us, that communicates joy and fulfillment. But maybe you grew up in a dysfunctional home, and when you hear that, it it doesn't conjure up good images. So maybe what that should do is when you think of heaven is you think of that place where you will experience all these things to the nth degree. Now, there are many rooms in heaven. Like like Jesus said in verse 2, there are many rooms in my Father's house, And I like that phrase because it makes it sound like there's a personal room there with my name on it, first of all. Like the Bible says that if we belong to Christ, we have a place in heaven reserved for us. So you're going to experience this amazing relationship with Jesus Christ. You're going to have a spot reserved for you. And there are going to be a lot of interesting and fascinating people in heaven. Revelation 7, 9. After the vision of these things, I looked. And there was a great number of people, so many that no one could count them. And they were from every nation, tribe, people, and language of the earth. They were all standing before the throne and before the Lamb, wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. So there are going to be people from every part of the world. Like we've covered 22 of those parts of the world here in our congregation, but it's going to be even more amazing than that. And there are other rooms, not just personal rooms. So this is where I'm allowed a little creative license here. Like I can picture a worship room, and you go there and you hear all the best, worship music and all the best preaching and people giving these amazing testimonies. And then they say on February 29th that I can have my chance to be the one that's there to speak. So they tricked me out of it a little bit, but I get once every four years. That's not bad. But maybe there's a recreation room and you can sign up for tours or activities or golf trips maybe there's an instant replay room where you can go and you can review any event in history and see exactly how it happened. And wouldn't it be interesting to go back through your own life and just look at all those times when God had his hand on you and it would have been tragedy if not for the fact that he was there lifting you up. Maybe there's a classroom where you can go and learn about all those things that have puzzled you your whole life. Like, how was the Grand Canyon created? The Rocky Mountains. I drove through the Rockies and all the other six mountain ranges last summer. Like, how did you create those, God? And then I want the Lord to explain the difference between two big words, predestination and foreknowledge, because I've been trying to answer that for 35 years, and I'm still am not sure if I've got it exactly right. Ephesians 2.7 So that for all future time, he could show the very great riches of his grace by being kind to us in Christ Jesus. Now, that word show means to... Reveal in an ongoing way. And there are a lot of things that I'd like to learn in that classroom. So heaven isn't going to be a place where you're going to be bored. You're not going to be sitting around just strumming on a harp the whole time. You're going to be involved in activities. And your present distress isn't the end anymore then the crucifixion was the end for Jesus because you're, you're not home yet. In verse 3, Jesus said, After I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. So this is referring to his second coming when he is going to return in glory and he is going to gather up those who have believed in him. He made that promise, and we can totally believe that he will fulfill it. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in Jesus, put your hope in heaven, and be confident that you're going there. So verses 4 to 6 finish up the passage we're looking at today. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you were going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. The only way to the Father is through me. Now, it's sad to say that the majority of people aren't going to heaven. Like, there's actually still a healthy percentage of Canadians who will say that they believe in heaven. But when you ask most of them why they think they're going to be there, they say, it's because I live a good life but they're going to be surprised that the entrance requirements are much greater than that. And although there are going to be more people in heaven than we can count, there will actually still be more people that don't make it to heaven. So it's vital that we know how to get there, and it's vital that we obey the instructions and share that message with others, because Jesus is the only way to heaven. And he said, follow me. If I was to say... But hey, do you know that there's a way to get from inside this building up onto the roof? And you'd kind of question me a little bit. And I would say, well, there's a hatch behind that curtain. And I would take you back there. I'd point the hatch out. And then I would ask you for a family photo out of your wallet. I'd take that and I'd say, see you in a few minutes. And I'd climb up a ladder and disappear. And then I would be back in a few minutes, and I've taken a selfie of myself standing on the roof in front of our spire holding up your family photo. So you would have to believe there is plenty of evidence there. Jesus said to his disciples that there is a way through death and back to life and on to eternal life. And he said, follow me. And then he led them to a cross where he died, And then he was buried in a dark tomb, and he disappeared for three days. But then he returned to them, and he had nail prints still in his hands, and he said, I am the way to eternal life. Follow me. No other religious leader has been able to do that. Joseph Smith, the the Dalai Lama, Buddha, Mohammed, they didn't come back from the dead. Only Jesus did. So that proves that He is the Son of God, that He is the one who died for our sins. He's the only one who's worthy of our total trust. Only He can say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to God but through me. So how can you be assured of eternal life? That God actually made it as simple as A, B, C, D. So we have an acrostic here. We just have to admit that we have sinned and separated ourselves from God. Romans 3.23, you probably have memorized. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's ideal or God's glorious standard, as we see in this translation. So your chance of making it to heaven is based upon God and upon Jesus' resurrection. It's not based upon your own goodness, because if it was based on that, That would be equal to your success of swimming from Lawrence Town Beach all the way over to the coast of England. If you're a strong swimmer, you might get out of Lawrence Town Beach and maybe get a little distance. But that's what the chances are of us making it to heaven based upon our own goodness. So instead of smugly comparing ourselves to other people and thinking, okay, I'm better than them, I'm good enough to make it to heaven, Align yourself with god's commandments and admit that you've broken almost all of them, and then say, "I am a sinner, i'm not deserving of heaven, I need forgiveness and then the b is simply to believe in Jesus Christ as your personal savior john three sixteen which many of us are familiar with that God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son that so that whoever believes in him may not be lost, but have eternal life. It's more than just a mental agreement that Jesus is God's son. Belief is more than that. It's putting your faith in his death on the cross to save you, rather than your good deeds. So you admit that you're a sinner, you believe in Jesus as your savior, and then confess that Jesus is the Lord of your life. Like Romans 10.9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. See, Jesus died publicly for your sins. It was on a prominent hill outside of Jerusalem, and it was on the busiest day of the year. And he asks you, when you make the decision to follow him, to confess him publicly, unashamedly, And it's not a confession of sin, but it's a confession of belief in Jesus. The Bible actually calls that the good confession. Now, some of you may be wondering why the chairs are set up this way. Well, on on Friday, Tate Willows and Greg Jones were married here. Tate and her uh, older sister started attending here when she was probably 10 years of age. And she's been away since she started college. But she came home to get married And she and Greg stood up here, and they repeated vows that they would love one another until death separated them. See, if your heart is right and you're willing to do that, you'll do that, even if it makes you tense, because over the years, I've had some really shy... Mostly grooms, actually, standing up here at the front. Some of them were in tears. They were so nervous about being in front of this group of people. But they were doing it because they loved that young woman that was standing across from them. When you become a Christian, God asks that you pledge your allegiance to Christ. Like Jesus said in Matthew 10.32, "'Whoever acknowledges me before others,' I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. So you've got to admit that you're a sinner, believe in Christ, and then you have to confess your faith in Him, and then you need to demonstrate your allegiance to Christ by repenting of sin and being baptized into Christ. Like Acts 2:38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But repentance means to change directions. And you've lived a life of selfish pleasure and now you're going to live a life for God's will. So repentance doesn't mean that you're going to go through this life perfectly. It means that there are going to be a lot of bumps along the way but you've turned your life around and surrendered it to Jesus Christ instead of following the crowd. And then baptism becomes that dividing line between the old life and the new life. In Romans, Paul wrote, Don't you know that all who share in Christ Jesus by being baptized also share in his death? When we were baptized, we died and were buried with Christ we were baptized so that we would live a new life as Christ was raised to life by the glory of the Father. If we shared in Christ's death by being baptized, we will also be raised to life with him. I read about an old pastor who believed that baptism should resemble a death and a burial. So when he baptized people, instead of saying, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then putting them under the water and and back up again, he would, first of all, under the water, and then he would say, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism. By this time, everybody's sitting up on their chairs. What's this guy doing? And the person being baptized, the eyes are wide open, wondering, Am I ever coming up again and then raised to walk a new life and the guy's gulping for breath and realizes that he has just come back from the grave. We don't do that in this church when we (laughs) baptize you. But baptism is to symbolize the death to that old way of life and rising to walk a new life. You belong to Christ and you're on the way to heaven. God raised Jesus from the dead. We read in our last scripture here, Romans 8. And if God's Spirit is living in you, he will also give life to your bodies that die. God is the one who raised Christ from the dead, and he will give life through his Spirit that lives in you. So don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust in Jesus. And remember, nothing is going to happen today that the two of you can't get through together. Focus your hope on heaven. Remember that there's a room prepared for you there and be confident because of your relationship with Jesus Christ that you are going there, not because of your goodness, but because you're following Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life.